please open your Bibles to Matthew 24. Once again, that's Matthew chapter 24. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 24, 9 to 14. And let's begin our time here this morning by reading this passage together in its context. That starts back in verse 1. So let's begin there. Matthew 24, 1 to 14. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in My name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Uh, This is now our seventh week in the Olivet Discourse. And if you've been with us over the past several weeks, then you know that most of what I've done up to this point in the series is try to introduce you to the subject of eschatology. Uh, Eschatology, of course, is a fancy word that denotes the field of doctrine related to the end times. That's the subject of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple, and the disciples connect this prediction with the Old Testament prophecy about the end. And so they ask Jesus, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The passage that follows, which is known today as the Olivet Discourse, is Jesus' answer to that question. Thus, it is an explanation of the end times. It has to do with eschatology. Unfortunately, eschatology is both a complex and neglected field of study, and so for these first few weeks, my goal has been to try to bring you up to speed on what the Bible says about the end, or eschaton, and not only so that you can track with what Jesus is saying in this answer, but so that you can properly apply it. Up to this point, we've talked about such topics as the day of the Lord, uh, the millennium, the eternal state. I've not only explained what the great tribulation is and what its purpose is for, but I've even started to fill in some of the details of this event. By this point, I would imagine that the Bible's picture of the end is starting to come into focus. And if so, then I would think that you can probably begin to see why so many find the Bible's teaching on this subject so objectionable. Take what we discussed last week. Last week I tried to lay out a basic sequence of events for the Great Tribulation. It wasn't a comprehensive sequence of events, just a rough sketch to provide a basic chronological framework for today's passage. By the time we got to the end of that message, I said that what the Bible teaches is that the Great Tribulation will begin with a period of persecution. Christians will experience incredible suffering on account of their faith in the first half of the tribulation. So far, not so bad. At least not if you're an unbeliever. There's not too much to object to there if you don't believe in Christ. However, things don't end there. That's just the beginning. 
Jesus says that this persecution will be followed by extraordinary turmoil across the face of the earth. War will stretch across the face of the earth. The book of Revelation says that it will actually incorporate up to a quarter of the entire earth's surface. With this war will come severe famine. People will not only be dying in battle, they'll be dying of starvation and pestilence and hunger and disease and plague on the earth. And as if this weren't enough, there will also be cataclysms. Great earthquakes and signs in the heavens. According to Revelation, a third of the sea creatures will die in these opening cataclysms. And a third of all fresh water will turn bitter. The the death toll that will occur in those days will be catastrophic. For instance, according to Revelation 9, over a third of mankind is killed when four angels release this massive army of otherworldly soldiers to unleash their devastation on the earth. And that's just the sixth trumpet. There are six other trumpets in addition to that one which are blown in order to warn the earth of the coming wrath of God. In other words, we're not even in the really bad part yet when that's going on. No, the really bad part, the part where Jesus begins to say, okay, when you see this happening, now you need to get worried. That's at the midpoint when the Antichrist seizes Jerusalem by force, sets himself up as an object of worship in the temple, and then forces the world to either worship him or face the consequences. Jesus says of those Israelites who don't flee into the wilderness, that is to say those Jews who don't believe, of those Jews, Jesus says many will die in battle. And of those who don't die, it will appear they'll be forced either to worship the Antichrist or be sent off to suffer his wrath in exile. It's at this time that Israel will experience an unbelievably intense period of persecution which is designed by God to bring about their repentance and faith. So this isn't a meaningless suffering. It's an act of divine discipline that's ultimately designed for the salvation of Israel. But by the time the Jews get to the end of this period of sorrow, they'll realize their error in rejecting the Messiah and they'll repent, right? Like That's the point of it. But at the same time, that conversion in salvation is still preceded by a time of unparalleled suffering and sorrow. Daniel calls it, quote, a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. How intense is that suffering? Zechariah says, in Zechariah 13, that in that day two-thirds of Jews will, uh, 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 in Bekol Ha'eretz, sorry, which can be translated either the whole land, meaning Israel, or the whole earth. He says that two-thirds will be killed. There are roughly six million Jews in Israel today and about 15 to 16 million globally. So if the Great Tribulation were today, and if Ha'eretz here refers to the land of Israel, that's four million killed. If it refers to the whole earth, we're talking roughly 11 million killed. Or roughly twice the number that were killed in the Holocaust. Given that the scriptures say it's a time of unmatched tribulation, I tend to think Zechariah probably means the latter. About a third of the global Jewish population died during the Holocaust. I believe Zechariah is indicating that double that will die during the Great Tribulation. In other words, the Antichrist is Hitler amplified. He is Hitler on steroids. Now, just pause a minute and think about what I'm saying here. From what I know, most of you here today would probably describe yourself as dispensational. I would gather most of you are premillennial, meaning... 
most of you see a pretty distinct difference between the church and Israel. And most of you believe that Jesus will return before he establishes his global dominion through national Israel. In short, you believe that God has not rejected Israel, that he has a plan for the Jewish people, that they are still dear to his heart, and he will ultimately demonstrate this love for them by saving them. You would therefore perceive yourself to be, in this sense, most decidedly pro-Israel, in that you believe they are a nation especially chosen of God, and you look forward to their redemption. But stop for a moment and look at what I just said from the perspective of an outsider. For example, think about what I just described, what that looks like through the eyes of a committed Jew. I'm saying that an event ultimately twice as deadly as the Holocaust is still in Israel's future. Why? It's because they do not believe in, from from their perspective, our Messiah, the Christian Messiah. We're saying that God is going to discipline them that severely to bring them to faith in our Messiah. Now, at the time, they'll realize that He's not just ours, right? He's theirs. That's the whole point. But forget that for a minute. Just think about how it looks right now from their perspective. It would seem severe, would it not? Excessive. Probably even narrow-minded, or dare I say, even hateful. To an outsider, this seems incredibly intolerant. And it isn't just Israel that's going to suffer in that day. God is actually going to pour out His wrath on the entire earth. I mentioned this a couple weeks back, but let me just say it again. Revelation 14 indicates that when the Messiah comes back to fight the Antichrist at Armageddon, the slaughter will be so devastating that as the blood drains from the battlefield, it will gather into gullies and ravines and flow as high as a horse's bridle for up to 185 miles. I would imagine that a lot of committed unbelievers would be completely turned off by that statement. They would say, if this is what Christianity teaches, then their God is a cruel and violent despot, and I want nothing to do with Him. Can you follow what I'm I'm saying here? You and I probably don't think twice about the severity of God's judgment in that day, and in part, I think it's because we know it's not aimed at us. You know, it doesn't affect me. That's our attitude. And so we fail to comprehend the significance of what these passages are saying. But put yourself in the shoes of an unbeliever, and this is all incredibly offensive. There's nothing politically correct about these passages. After all, you'll find nothing of pluralism or religious tolerance here. When God determines to settle his accounts with the world, there will be with the world, there will be no compromise. And the wrath that will fall on those who refuse to repent and believe will be incredibly severe. And so the question that's raised at this point is, is this just? Is this just? Can a righteous and loving God really allow or even ordain this kind of agony and bloodshed? And if so, how? How can this be consistent with His character? That's the question I want to try to answer for you this morning as I continue to introduce this passage to you. Once again, if you were here with us last week, then you've already heard me explain where this passage falls within the broader chronological framework of the Great Tribulation. To recap, we've seen that the Tribulation can be broken down into halves, two halves divided by a midpoint. Our passage happens in the first half with the cataclysms and world war described in verses 7 to 8. More specifically, Luke explains that the persecution described in this passage actually 
precedes those signs in the first half. So that's the first event of the seven-year tribulation in the Olivet Discourse, persecution. This persecution is then followed by and will occur simultaneously to the cataclysms and wars described in verses 7 to 8. By the midpoint of the tribulation, there are a significant number of Jewish believers who have come to faith and are suffering during the persecution. And it's at this point that, according to Revelation 12, the angel Michael casts Satan out of heaven so he can advocate against the people of Israel no more. Satan understands at this point that his time is short. He understands that God is about to fully redeem his people and bring the current world world order uh, to a close. And so he empowers the Antichrist to come against Israel with great wrath. With this empowerment, the Antichrist conquers Jerusalem by force. He sets up the abomination of desolation in the temple, and he begins to punish everyone who does not exalt him as a god. His power is global at this point. All the nations begin to follow him. And as he prepares to set up this new worldwide religion, those Jews who believe heed the warning Jesus describes here in Matthew 24. And they flee into the wilderness where they are protected by the Antichrist's wrath for the remainder of the tribulation period. Those Jews who do not believe are faced with either two options. Either they can worship the Antichrist and, it would seem, remain in Israel, or they can refuse and be shipped off into exile. Either way, the suffering that these remaining Jews experience is incredibly intense. In fact, it's so intense that they begin to say to themselves, we know why this is happening. We understand why God is doing this. And then either gradually, over time, or all at once, personally I think it's probably some combination of the two, but those remaining Jews come to faith. And they finally call out to their Messiah, their Messiah, who they now recognize as Jesus, and they call out to Him to come and deliver them. He returns... He recaptures the city of Jerusalem and destroys the Antichrist in the battle of Armageddon. This is followed immediately by the millennium. Israel will be reunited into one kingdom and restored to the land. And Jesus will rule over the earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's the basic sequence that I've described up to this point in our series. And I've noted that in this first section of the discourse, Jesus is answering the question, when will these things be? The disciples hear Jesus' uh, prediction of the temple's destruction. They perceive that it has something to do with this time of incredible suffering for Israel, which has been described in the Old Testament. They want to know first, when will that time of suffering begin? And then second, they want to know, when will it end? That's what's meant by, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're looking for the Messiah's return, when he will descend on the Mount of Olives and go out to contend against the Antichrist on behalf of the people of Israel. Now, I said last week that in order to properly apply today's passage, we first have to understand what this persecution is and why it's happening. And so we started to take a look at what this persecution is by studying its place in the sequence of tribulation events described in the rest of the Old and New Testaments. We can see that it is a period of persecution that occurs in the first half of the tribulation leading up to Satan's fall from heaven and the wrath of the Antichrist that occurs in the second half. What I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is now describe what the conditions on the earth are like generally during the first and second half of the tribulation. So basically, understanding the appropriate order, we'll go back to the beginning and we'll see what the scriptures tell us is going on in the world at each successive stage of the tribulation. And then after that's been established, I want to just briefly explain the rationale 
behind the tribulation. And more specifically, I want to explain the rationale behind the persecution occurring in this passage. There's a logic to the order of the events I've just described. And I think if you understand this logic, then we can not only see that God is just, that He's just in the wrath that He pours out during the tribulation. But we'll also begin to understand how we are meant to apply this passage today. So, that being said, let's go ahead and pick up where we left off last week. We've already studied where this passage falls within the sequence of tribulation events. Let's now look at the conditions and the rationale of the tribulation. First, the conditions. The conditions. We've already read Matthew's account of this period of persecution, and we're going to make a few observation about, uh, observations about what conditions are like during this first half from what Jesus describes in this passage. But before we do that, please flip over to Luke 21 once again. We looked here last week. Last week, we saw that Luke offers a different perspective on the midpoint of the tribulation. Well, I want us to read what he says about this period of persecution because he offers us some unique insights on this aspect of the tribulation as well. Uh, Luke describes the initial period of persecution in verses 12 to 19. But let's read starting from verse 8. Verse 8. Luke says, And he said, see that, no one, uh, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by priests, or I'm sorry, parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. From this passage, we can identify two tribulation conditions that I think will help inform what we find over in Matthew 24. And those two conditions are, number one, a restored Jewish nationalism. A restored Jewish nationalism, which leads to, number two, Jewish persecution of Christians. Jewish persecution of Christians. The first condition is admittedly a bit of a stretch. I may be reading a bit too much uh, between the lines here. I don't think I am, but I may be. But I want you to observe, first of all, that the temple will be rebuilt by the time of the tribulation, and sacrifices will be resumed. We don't find that here in Luke. That comes from Daniel 9, 27. There Daniel says that at the beginning of the 70th week, the Antichrist will make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week, uh, uh, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. The end of sacrifice and offering obviously occurs when the abomination of desolation is set up at the midpoint. And this means that the sacrifices resume at some point during or before the first half of the tribulation. In other words, at this stage of the tribulation, there is a return to Old Testament Judaism. The Mosaic sacrifices have been restored. And this return to Old Testament Judaism is accompanied by zealous persecution of Christians residing in Israel. Really, this may, not only be, uh, this may not be only Israel, because Jesus says in Luke 21, 12, that His disciples will be handed over 
both the synagogues and the kings and governors for his namesake. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the synagogue, the, the Jewish synagogue was a late development in Old Testament, Old Testament history. It came about as Jews were scattered in exile across the earth and could no longer make the temple the central place of their worship. They instead started to make the Torah the central component of their worship instead of the sacrifice. Worship began to be defined more and more by one's obedience to the moral components of the law rather than by conformity to the ceremonial elements. So the fact that Christians are being handed over to the synagogues and to kings and governors probably indicates that, number one, this persecution extends beyond Israel, out into the nations. And number two, that this is primarily Jew-on-Jew persecution. A synagogue, synagogue, of course, would have no jurisdiction over a Gentile. It would, however, have jurisdiction over other Jews. It would seem that what's happening here is during the tribulation, there is a return of Jewish persecution, very much like what the church experienced in the first century. And at the heart of this persecution are Jewish leaders coming after Jewish Christians for their belief in Jesus. They're seeking to extinguish this kind of belief in their community. Hence why I say there appears to be a restoration of Jewish nationalism at this time. It is not only that the Jews have had their old system of worship restored, but it would seem that they are attempting to purge any deviance from this system of worship from their nation. They are demanding that all fellow Jews adhere to the law of Moses or be cut off from their people. Think of the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7 or the many trials that Paul endured at the hands of the Jews in the book of Acts, where they often tried to kill him, and those are the conditions that you see returning during the period of the tribulation. Moreover, the fact that the Jews are handing these Jewish Christians over to kings and governors probably indicates that the conditions of the first century have returned in more ways than one. It's not only that the Jews have resumed their persecution of Christians, but they're doing so under the protection of Gentile rulers. Think about it. How is a population of perhaps 16 million, perhaps more, only about 6 million of which are actually concentrated in one geographical territory, how is such an insignificant minority able to engage in this type of hostility? Well, it's going to be the same way that they did it during the first century. They used the power of Rome. Jesus, of course, was executed not by Jews, but by the Roman Pontius Pilate. Peter, likewise, was killed by the Roman emperor, as was Paul. Whenever the Jewish authorities wanted to attack the first Christians, this is where they turned. They turned to the legal authority of Rome. It would appear that it will happen the same way then. On what basis will they manage to turn these secular authorities against the Christians of that time? Once again, I think you find a pattern in the first century. If you would turn over to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Of course, in Daniel 9, we find a description of the 70 weeks. We took a look at this passage a couple weeks ago. What we did not explore with much detail is the description that we find in verse 27 of the 70th week, the week of the Great Tribulation. It says in verse 27 that he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Once again, the he there refers to the Antichrist. 
And the passage not only says that He will put an end to sacrifice and offering at the midpoint of the tribulation, but it also says that at the beginning of the week, He shall, quote, make a strong covenant with many. Now, it's often said that this is a covenant of peace that's formed with Israel, wherein the Antichrist becomes Israel's defender and protector. I don't know that's how we can read this covenant. I can go with the fact that Israel is included in the covenant, even if I don't think that it's made exclusively with Israel. After all, the covenant here is made with many. That would appear to include more than just one nation. Still, the cessation of sacrifice in the second half seems to imply a broken covenant. So I can agree that Israel is included in this covenant. I just don't think that there's anything about this covenant that implies that it's in any way friendly. The verb for make here is the the word hegebir, from the root gebar. And it carries with it this idea of overcoming or excelling over. That's what gabar means, simply to excel. In various forms, it can take on the meaning of exert or to show oneself superior. In Genesis 7, when the waters prevail over the face of the earth, the word is gabar. This is why the ESV calls this a strong covenant. And it is why the New American Standard calls it a firm covenant. There's force behind this covenant. It's binding. Personally, I think both the ESV and the NASB are a little misleading because they place the modifier on the noun as if there were an adjective here in this verse describing the covenant. There's no adjective. There's just verb plus noun. Wehegebir berit. This is why other translations often say that he will confirm a covenant with many. They're trying to capture the interplay between the verb and the noun. I just think it's too weak to say confirm. When we think confirm, we think agree. You confirm plans for the weekend. That sort of thing. And this is stronger than that. Personally, I think perhaps the best way to translate this is enforce. He shall enforce a covenant with the many. Either way, the idea is that there's a measure of force in this covenant. And I think what it's describing is an agreement very much like the ones that the Jews enjoyed with Rome in the first century. Did Israel and Rome have a peace agreement with one another? Certainly. They had a peace agreement, but it was one held in place by the threat of Roman power. Israel in no way wanted to be in covenant with Rome but they didn't have a choice. And so they agreed to Roman terms. And under those terms, they even enjoyed a level of freedom and independence. You could even say that Rome served as their protector because they most certainly did protect Israel. One of the great achievements of Rome was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Rome so completely overran and enveloped the various nations of the Mediterranean world that it actually ushered in a period of extended peace. There were no wars. Because there was only one power in that portion of the world, and that was Rome, and every nation was subject to it. Egypt could no more declare war on Israel than Missouri could declare war on Kansas. The federal power above those nations put an immediate end to any kind of regional squabbles. So yeah, Rome protected Israel, if you want to call it that. But there was certainly nothing voluntary about that arrangement. I think that's what you're seeing in Daniel 9.27. The Antichrist is using his power to force a number of states, including Israel, into an agreement like that between Rome and its subject nations in the first century. In short, 
the return of Roman hegemony. That's what Daniel 9.27 is describing. And this makes sense, does it not? I mean, if Daniel says that the Antichrist comes from Rome, then shouldn't we expect that he will interact with Israel in much the same way that those original Roman emperors did? Why would we think that a man described in Scripture as a man full of boasting and bent on power would ever act as Israel's benefactor? There's nothing beneficent about the Antichrist. He's a tyrant, plain and simple. I think this is, important, this is an important point to understand if you're going to grasp some of the later events of the tribulation. If in the first half of the tribulation there's a peace between Israel and the Antichrist, it's there, but it's a tenuous one. I tend to think this relationship will play a significant role in the rise of Jewish nationalism in this day. I mean, just imagine what would happen today if the state of Israel suddenly lost their independence. No doubt the more conservative Zionist factions in Israel would suddenly gain a significant voice. As they try to establish a strong national identity centered around the Mosaic Law and the Temple sacrifices, how would they respond to the Jewish Christians in their midst? It seems plausible they would respond in the same way that Jesus describes in Luke 21. They'll begin to persecute them. They'll try to eliminate that influence as they try to unite their people. And once again, how will the Jewish authorities manage to bring their Christian kinsmen to trial? Again, they'll do it in the exact same way they did it in the first century. The exact same way they did it with Jesus. They'll charge them with insurrection. They'll say that in worshiping the Christ, these men have no allegiance to Caesar. And the secular authorities of that day will be all too eager to cooperate. Keep in mind, I don't think it's reasonable to assume that the Antichrist is just going to suddenly, without warning, proclaim himself to be a god, as if that were some kind of a surprise when it happens. This is a man full of arrogance and boasting. And you can expect that long, long before he declares himself a god, he's going to demand total allegiance from his subjects. So these are the first two conditions that we see during this period based on Luke 21. Number one, a restored Jewish nationalism. Followed by number two, Jewish persecution of Christians. This is very important. The Jewish persecution of Christians is going to play a significant role in the rationale of the tribulation. So keep these two points in mind. Now, what do these two conditions lead to? This takes us to our next two points. Condition number three, apostasy. Number three, apostasy. And number four, global gospel proclamation. Global gospel proclamation. We find the apostasy in Matthew 24. Keep your place in Luke 21 and flip back over there. This is what Matthew focuses on at this point, the great number of people who fall away during this period of persecution. Jesus says in verses 9 to 13, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of this, lawlessness will be increased. And the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Clearly, clearly this persecution is going to have its desired effect. It's designed to force Christians to abandon their faith, and it does precisely that. Jesus says that the love of many will, will grow cold, and they'll fall away. He even says that many will hate and betray one another. So it would appear that the apostates don't just apostatize, but they turn state's evidence They turn state's evidence. They actually begin to rat out their former brothers and sisters and testify against them. 
So the persecution is intensified as unbelievers begin to abandon the faith, and as the heat intensifies, many continue to fall away. By the way, Paul refers to this apostasy in 2 Thessalonians 2. There he tells the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord will not come or has not come, quote, unless the rebellion, literally the apostasia, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There's all kinds of speculation about what this apostasia is. I recently even read one author who tried to claim that it's a reference to the rapture. Listen, it's not that complicated. Paul's just moving from the first half to the second half of the tribulation. The rebellion comes first, then the Antichrist. So if you want to know whether or not the Antichrist has come, that's what you look for first. There's no Antichrist if there's no apostasy. He's just repeating Jesus' teaching from the Olivet Discourse. Jesus says that in the first half, many will fall away. And yet that's not the whole story. Because in the midst of this apostasy, there are many who endure as well. And as a result of this endurance, the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Jesus talks about this in verse 14. He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. It would appear that there's a number of ways that this prophecy is fulfilled, that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. In Revelation 14, 6, John sees an angel flying over the earth, quote, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Revelation 11 also refers to two witnesses who are killed by the Antichrist, apparently at the midpoint of the tribulation. According to John, quote, If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague so often as they desire. The best that I can tell, these two witnesses are the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5-6, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. When the disciples asked Jesus about the coming of Elijah, it says that Jesus told them that Elijah both has come and that he will come and restore all things. The has-come part of that obviously refers to John the Baptist. He came to proclaim the coming of the Lord to Israel. I think the will-come part is fulfilled right here. It would seem that these two witnesses are based in Jerusalem, and they're warning Israel about the consequence of their rejection of the Christ. The Jews are handing over Jewish Christians to death, and these men are telling them, you need to repent now or you're going to be swept away in the wrath of God that is soon to visit upon you for your sin. The Jews try to seize these men too, but they're unable. It isn't until the Antichrist seizes Jerusalem that they're able to be killed. Revelation 11.7 says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. When these men die, it says that for three and a half days, people from across the whole earth will gaze on their bodies and rejoice over their deaths and make merry and exchange presents. 
They're celebrating their death. So even though these men would appear to witness primarily to Israel, the whole world is still aware of their message and celebrates their martyrdom. The only problem, of course, is that after those three and a half days have concluded, they actually rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. And John says that their enemies watch them. An earthquake strikes the city of Jerusalem, killing 7,000. And John says the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Given the global response to the ministry of these two witnesses, it seems reasonable to conclude that there is another way that this prophecy about the global proclamation of the gospel is fulfilled. However, turn back over to Luke 21 and see what Jesus says there. He says in verses 12 to 13, But before this they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And by the way, it's at this point that Mark, in Mark 13.10, adds, he adds at this point in the discourse, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Both Mark and Luke then go on to speak of how the Christian should not be anxious about what to say in those days because the Holy Spirit will tell them what to say. You take those two accounts together and you can see that Jesus is saying that at this time, God will actually supernaturally empower His people to give a clear and powerful testimony to their persecutors. And since this persecution is being led globally by Jews who are handing Christians over to their Gentile overlords, this actually becomes the means through which God delivers the gospel to the kings and governors of the world. Just like the Jews' persecution of Paul in Jerusalem became God's means of bringing the gospel to the whole imperial guard and eventually even to Caesar himself in Rome. It will be the same in this day as well. The gospel will actually infiltrate the highest echelons of authority during this period of persecution. And the Christian witness delivered under this time of distress will be so powerful and compelling that the whole world will come to hear of the good news. This is also very important. Don't forget this. It would seem that the purpose of this persecution is to actually deliver the gospel to all people. You cannot miss this. This is going to be so, so important later on. So let me state it once again. One of the things that we learn from the Olivet Discourse is that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world through the power of Christian testimony that is delivered in the time of this great persecution. So, Let's recap here. A a revived Jewish nationalism is going to produce a Jewish persecution of Christians. Out of this persecution will come great apostasy. And yet those that remain will give a powerful witness to the gospel that will spread throughout the whole earth. And this leads us to our fifth condition, number five. Increasing Jewish belief. Increasing Jewish belief. While much of Israel will will participate in the persecution of Christians, there will yet be others who will convert during this time, who will believe, and who will actually join their brethren in martyrdom. You won't find this in any of the accounts of the Olivet Discourse, but I do think you find it in Revelation 12. You remember last week how I said that Revelation 12 seems to indicate a partial salvation of Israel by the midpoint of the tribulation? And do you remember how I said that when Michael casts Satan down from heaven, 
The brethren there in heaven cry out, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For, the voice proclaims, for they love not their lives even unto death. You guys remember that? Well, that seems to be the result of the first half of the tribulation. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will supply His disciples with an answer that no one can withstand or contradict. God likewise says that before the great and awesome day of the Lord will come, He will send Elijah, the prophet, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest He come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, it seems that what's happening in the first half of the tribulation is exactly that. As the Jews persecute Christians... They're doing the very thing that Jesus talks about at the end of Matthew 23. They're filling up the wrath of God by attacking the messengers that He sent to them as a witness. And so God sends these witnesses to call the nation to repentance so that God will not strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And their witness, combined with the witness of the Christian martyrs, manages to produce a sufficient level of faith in Israel that Michael actually casts Satan down to earth which is the event that kicks off the final leg of the Great Tribulation. Now, how this works, we'll touch on in just a minute. All I want to point out right now is that while much of Israel is joining in the persecution of the martyrs, many others are actually coming to faith and joining them in martyrdom. So there is Jewish persecution. And yet, as a result of this persecution, there's also a growing Jewish faith. And both of these points play into the rationale. So we've covered the second half of the tribulation so thoroughly. Uh, we're at the kind of the midpoint at this point. I, we've covered the second half of the tribulation so thoroughly that I don't know that I really need to go over it again in terms of conditions. The, the book of Revelation says that at some point, the Antichrist will recover from an apparently mortal wound. And it says that after he recovers, the whole earth will marvel and follow the beast. Uh, this seems to put the mortal wound somewhere around the midpoint of the tribulation. This wound is also said to be delivered by the sword, meaning that it's an act of violence. It's not an accident, it's not disease, it's it's an act of violence. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, I want to make this clear. What I'm about to say is speculative. But if you were to ask me how the Antichrist receives this mortal wound, I would guess that it comes at the hand of Jewish nationalists. Daniel 11 speaks of the Antichrist hearing rumors in the north and the east that alarm him. And so he journeys from a campaign in northeast Africa into Israel where he sets up camp. Now perhaps this is a rebellion in Israel, much like the one that led to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And and perhaps that's the news that leads the Antichrist into Israel. And perhaps he's wounded in battle in the course of those events. Or, I think probably more likely, perhaps the Antichrist journeys into Israel to wage war against that massive army released at the the Euphrates that kills a third of mankind, which we talked about during the sixth trumpet. He comes back into Israel for that, and perhaps during this time, Jewish nationals, men like Simon the Zealot, or men like Judas the Galilean, they see their opportunity, and they strike by trying to assassinate the Antichrist. Either way, I think what makes the most sense is that the Antichrist's apparent death is at the hands of Jewish nationalists. And so, at that point, the covenant breaks down. 
Again, I'm just, I'm just taking a guess here, but it makes sense that at this point you would see Jews suddenly labeled as enemies of the state. The Antichrist then turns his armies towards Jerusalem and he crushes the Jewish people. As he enters the city of Jerusalem, apparently risen from the dead, he slays the two witnesses that no one could slay. And he then proceeds to enter into the temple and set himself up as an object of worship. He proclaims himself to be a god. And by that point, people are starting to believe it. He can't be killed, or at least it doesn't look like it. And not only that, but he he has not only captured God's capital city and his temple, but he's even killed the two messengers that have been clearly empowered by God to proclaim his message. By that point, it would start to look like he can actually win a war with God. And so the whole world capitulates and falls under his sway. They worship his image and they submit to his power. Under these circumstances, those Jews who renounce their Jewish faith are spared and they're allowed to remain in Israel, while those who are not are scattered across the face of the earth where they experience tremendous persecution and sorrow. And it's only at the end of this, it's only once the remainder of Israel is so crushed by the weight of this persecution that they finally begin to realize their sin and cry out to God for mercy. It's only once that happens that God sends their Messiah back to deliver them. So, those are the conditions. Let's try to spend a few minutes now on the rationale. I think to illustrate this point, I'd like you to turn to the book of Revelation, specifically Revelation 6, chapter 6. In Revelation 6, we find the seven seals that we discussed last week. These seals describe the general conditions that will occur on the earth during the time of the tribulation. Actually, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, The Antichrist is unleashed in the first seal. He's followed by war in the second seal, famine in the third, and death in the fourth. In the sixth seal, we see the geographical and astronomical cataclysms that Jesus describes back in Matthew 24. What I'd like to point out to you are the fifth and the seventh seals. The fifth and the seventh seals. In the fifth seal, John says that the great tribulation will be characterized by martyrdom. And look at what these martyrs are saying. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they each were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Note this, these martyrs are crying out to God for vengeance. And note where they are, by the way, they're under this heavenly altar, which is this part of the temple where sacrifice is made. Now, turn over to Revelation 8.1 and look at the description of the seventh seal. When the seventh seal is broken, there's silence in heaven for half an hour. After this silence, the seven trumpets that will warn of the coming wrath of God are distributed to seven angels who will blow them in the subsequent chapters of this vision. Then look at verses 3 to 5. And another angel came and stood at the altar. Okay, remember that. They stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense 
with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, can can you see what's happening here? This angel casts fire from the altar in heaven down onto the earth. This would seem to be a picture of the judgment that God will finally deliver on the earth throughout the period of the tribulation. And guess what is thrown down with this fire? It's the censer of incense that is offered up to God along with the prayers of the saints. In other words, it would seem that this fire is cast down upon the earth as a result of the prayers of the saints. The censer of fire indicates that the prayers of the saints are the cause of this final act of judgment. It's the same thing we find with Israel in Revelation 12. Why is Satan cast down to earth? The voice in heaven explains, the brethren, quote, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. It isn't just their belief, but also their martyrdom that is critical in their overcoming of Satan. Likewise, as the celebration of heaven reaches a crescendo immediately before the return of Christ, there's a loud voice that rejoices over the death of Babylon, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The multitude is rejoicing because in the act of Babylon's destruction, they see a demonstration of God's vengeance for his saints, for the martyrs. That's what provokes that judgment. Babylon is destroyed because of its treatment of the saints. And if you follow the timeline and conditions we've established by this point, you can see how this works. The first thing that happens in the tribulation is this severe persecution of Christians after the establishment of this covenant between Israel and the Antichrist. During this time, the body of Christ is purged and the saints who remain give an unparalleled proclamation to the gospel, not only in terms of its content, but also in terms of its power as they bravely and confidently give their lives to Christ. What does this martyrdom do? It not only seals the world under judgment because they have clearly heard the gospel, leaving them without excuse, but it also moves God with compassion for his people. And so in order to put an end to their suffering, he begins to set in motion this final act of judgment upon their persecutors. However, before he completes this act of judgment, he gives the world ample opportunity to repent. This is demonstrated through the seven trumpet judgments in the first half of the tribulation, which prefigure the seven bold judgments of the second half. This is why the signs follow the beginning of persecution in Luke 21. They're the reason for that final sequence of judgment. The persecution comes first. And then the judgments come as a response to this evil. Now, if things were just left like that, then Israel would be swept away in this act of judgment as well. After all, they're even helping to lead this persecution of Christians. 
And they will suffer dearly for this evil during the second half of the tribulation. But, but God has made a promise to their fathers that they would have a kingdom and that they would become the preeminent nation on the earth. And so, in addition to the martyrs, he sends the two witnesses to, quote, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This works. It works. Many, many in Israel actually come to believe during the first half, and they join their Christian brethren in martyrdom. And as God sees these Jewish brethren suffering, He's moved with compassion for them to bring a close to the period of suffering that began in 70 AD. So Satan is cast down in heaven, cast down from heaven. God will hear his accusations against Israel no more. This signals the end for Satan, and so the events of the midpoint, the severe persecution to Israel, all that, 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 and all that that follows is kicked into motion. And then, and then, as Israel suffers under the reign of the Antichrist in the second half, they realize the sin of what they've done in the first half. They come to understand God is doing this to us because of what we did to the Christians. Either that or somewhere towards the end, God just suddenly opens their eyes. Honestly, it would appear to be some combination of the two. Either way, they come to believe. And as they believe, they all too likewise suffer for the faith. And as the suffering of Israel builds, God's anger towards the nations and His compassion for His people builds as well. So when they finally turn to to faith in the Messiah, and call out to God for deliverance, he listens. The father turns to the son and he says, it's time. And the rider on the white horse descends to redeem his people. Zechariah 12 indicates that at that time, God will supernaturally empower the Jews to overcome the nations that surround them. They're described as a blazing pot in the midst of wood and as a flaming torch among sheaves. Basically like a flurry of sparks that falls in a pile of dry leaves, the people begin to rapidly consume the nations around them from the inside out. It's like a modern-day Purim. The day of Israel's destruction, instead it turns into a day of victory over their captors. And out in front, leading the charge, is the Lord Jesus. His first act of business is to retake the capital city. Zechariah 14 says that He will land on the Mount of Olives and enter into the city with His holy ones. The Antichrist, in the meantime, has already organized a tactical retreat. Revelation 16 says that the Antichrist assembles his armies near a place called Har Megiddo, which is on the uh, the edge of the valley of Jezreel to the north. This incredibly flat valley is about 25 miles long and 14 miles wide. Upon seeing it, the Emperor Napoleon once commented, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. Remember, Daniel describes the Antichrist as a military genius. And so he assembles his army in the place that gives him the best opportunity to use his strategic brilliance to outmaneuver the armies of the Christ. The two armies meet for battle, and of course it's a total rout. One thinks of Israel's decisive victory over the city of Jericho, or or even better yet, of the destruction of the 185,000 Assyrians by the angel of the Lord in a single night. Point is, it's a blowout. Jesus doesn't even lay his hands on the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says that he'll slay the Antichrist merely with the breath of his mouth. So Jesus doesn't have to seize the Antichrist in order to kill him. He just has to proclaim it. The word of his command is enough to defeat the Antichrist. 
Now, next week we're going to come back and we're going to discuss the significance of Matthew 24, 9-14 for us today. I think we have a good foundation laid for the application of this passage. But I would just have you note in the meantime is that it would seem that what motivates God's final act of judgment is His compassion. We know from 2 Peter 3 that it's His mercy that leads Him to delay His judgment now. And it is His mercy that will lead Him to execute it in the end as well. To be clear, this is not to say that He will not express severe wrath on those who oppose Him in that day. He will, no doubt. But understand, what motivates that wrath is the severe treatment of His people by the wicked on the earth. There will be nothing unjust about the wrath of God in that day. It will not only come as a just response to the extreme wickedness that will occur on the earth in the days of the tribulation, but it will also come with more than an ample amount of warning. Even when God is moved to wrath, He sends the gospel through the martyrs and the two witnesses. He sends an angel from heaven to proclaim the gospel throughout the whole earth. And He will do this in addition to the great trumpet judgments that prefigure the end. In Revelation 9, it says that in response to the aftermath of the sixth trumpet, quote, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. There's just an absolute refusal to heed God's warning and accept His terms for peace. So let this, let's, let's make this clear. It isn't, it is not, that God's judgment is unjust. What's unjust about the great tribulation is the persecution of the righteous that will, that will happen in that day. And while God will endure with much patience those who afflict Him, He will not be so patient with those who afflict His people. He is a great and loving shepherd who cannot long endure to see His people suffer. And so when the persecution begins, when the suffering of the righteous reaches historical levels, watch out. The end will not be far behind. This has always been the point of the final judgment. In the words of Zechariah, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David. Quote, this is Luke 1, 73-74. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Quote, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is why God will act in the final day. Not simply to destroy, but to protect. He will come with great wrath, but it will be a wrath motivated by His tremendous love and mercy. Let's pray.